0: Hello, and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and back with me as ever this week, we have Spikes editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And making his Spiked podcast debut, it's regular Spiked contributor, Ralph Schellhammer.
1: Thank you so much for having me, great to be here. Thanks for coming on.
0: Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing the barbarism in Israel, the pointlessness of Keir Starmer, and why net zero is so much more dangerous than climate change. So on Saturday, the World bore witness to some truly atrocious events um, at the current count. When we're recording this, it seems as if um, over 1,300 people all have died in Israel following Hamas's incursion into that territory. Um, Tom, it seems as if the more we learn, as the week has developed, the grimmer the details have mm. got. Do you want to paint a little bit of a picture of some of the things we've learned?
2: Well, where to begin? I mean, as you say, at the moment of recording so far, I think it's 1,300 in that region have been confirmed dead in Israel. Um, We've all seen the story. So 260 people gunned down at that dance music festival in the south of the country. You had some kibbutzes, Baeri was one where one in 10 of the entire population was slaughtered. I mean, Mm. that's the literal definition of decimation that's taken place there. There's obviously been also the horrific scenes that we've seen as soldiers have been clearing the bodies from the um, from another kibbutz in which there have been claims of the indiscriminate killing not only of civilians and adults but of children as well. Babies even has been mentioned although there's a very bizarre discussion going on about that on the internet at the moment we might touch on. The scale of the depravity is um, unprecedented certainly for Israel. I mean this is Important that we understand this in the context of this is the world's oldest hatred making a depraved and, in the worst possible way, spectacular return to the kind of international scene. I mean, this is not a liberation struggle. Hamas is a genocidal cult, effectively, who have proven this week that they were really about what they said they have been about ever, you know, since day one. That this wasn't a national liberation struggle. This was about the desire to wipe Israel and Jews, frankly, off of the map. And I can't be the only one who's kind of gone through two waves of this or experienced this in kind of two different dimensions, one of which is the shock and disgust at the violence and the barbarism and the butchery which has been perpetrated here. And then the shock and disgust at the response that we've seen across various different Western nations. You've had people take to the streets Mm. to celebrate this. Let's not mince words about this. That's what some of those demonstrations have been. You've had people on the left who have been at best making excuses. In other situations and the quotes are all out there everyone can go and read them celebrating what went on saying it was a day for celebration in the name of one navara media co- contributor and i'm shocked but not surprised i suppose by all of that i mean there has been this tendency apart various different sections of politics to either harbor these prejudices or certainly to make excuses for them but to see that trotted out in the wake of what's happened uh surprised even me in that sense and i think it just shows that not only is there the immediate pressing questions about what's going to happen in israel and in palestine what's going to happen on the ground but there's also the sort of broader question of how did we get to a point where something like this could take place and there's a not insignificant minority of people even in western nations who think to themselves good or what do you expect but that's where we've ended up
0: ralph do you think there's maybe a bit of an ignorance about hamas in particular and what they what they stand for because a lot of people as tom was suggesting seem to confuse this with um You know, a movement for Palestinian self-determination, something that might, uh, you know, something like that might sound progressive, but clearly this is not what is going on.
1: You know, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, if we listen to what comes out of the Hamas leadership in Qatar, I mean, if you listen closely, they always talk about the Jews, not Mm. the Israelis. So for them, this Mm. is a, a global struggle against the Jews. And the other thing is, and this is a little bit, if one wants to push some blame on the West and others is... Hamas has been in charge of the Gaza Strip since 2007. And basically what they've done there, they have kind of conducted one of the largest brainwashing operations mm. ever ever done. Um, the, the median age in Gaza is 18 years old. They have a huge male surplus in the lower age group with the lower age half of the population. And this means there's, of course, there's also a huge testosterone overshooting. And the idea that these 18-year-olds are kind of deeply grieved by the loss of land in 1948 i mean this is simply not true right they created exactly as you just said right they created a cult this was not as some always tend to say the world's largest open-air prison it was a garrison right all they did right they they built kibbutzis right at uh, kind of you know in, in fake kibbutzis to to prepare for the attack so everything they did was aimed at one day to attack israel in kind of whatever way, shape, or form. And and everything they got, every money they got from from Qatar, from uh from Turkey, from the EU, from the from the West, that right, all was invested into this. Like you hear all over the news. Israel is cutting electricity, Israel is cutting water. Yes, that's true. But the reason why they don't have it on their own is because Hamas never used that money to build infrastructure. Mm. And I think this is such a frustrating thing because what we have done in the West, the left, I think, more than others, we have always romanticized these movements. I think that the Palestinian resistance, for whatever reason, particularly since the 1970s, was kind of, you know, Rousseau's noble savage in its purest form, right? Whatever they did was somehow understandable, whether it was the Olympic Games in Munich, whether what we saw now, somehow this was always justified. And I think what Tom said was right because it coincided a little bit with the West's oldest hatred, right? The, the hatred against um against the jews but i think there's something more insidious in place as well a lot of the modern left is in the end i would argue infused with an anti-western ideology and in many ways and i think the israelis notice themselves israel is a western state in the arab world so and i think that is something that rubs many people the wrong way because they did show what could be done in that area right they built out of nothing one of the world's most technologically advanced nations. Mm. And everybody else in the region could have done it as well, but they didn't. Like The, the only other Arab nations that are successful are those that have, quote-unquote, oil coming out of the ground. That I think there is something going on there as well. There is a certain... The kind of self-hatred that we'll see among the left in the West is also projected onto Israel. I think that's at least some part of the story. Uh, we, we should definitely come on to that, that
0: sort of question of, you know, Israelophobia, as some, yes. some people mm-hmm. have, have called it, you know, israel almost cast as um you know the little satan to america's big satan tom i mean one factor in obviously for a very long time support for palestine has been almost a kind of sine qua non of Mm -hmm. the west but something has changed a little bit in terms of the development of identity politics that has fueled something that is outright i think explicitly anti-semitic
2: oh 100 i think what we've seen demonstrated here is that we've got this sort of toxic mix of sort of islamist anti-Semitism, sort of left identitarian anti-Semitism and the upshot of it when you put it all together and you bring it to boil is the kind of barbarism that we haven't seen since the Second World War effectively if you are talking about the indiscriminate killing of civilians because of who they are, because of the fact that they are Jews, let's not mince words about that, that's what's been going on here and the th- it's, it's fascinating because I think what's um, and it's something that we've been writing about for a very long time but I think Frank Frady really put his finger on it in his long Reefers fight this week where he talks about the thing about having a hierarchy of victimhood, which is obviously what has been maintained in Western progressive circles for some time now. First of all, it's quite unseemly. Do you want to enter a kind of competition for who's got the most victim points and therefore you're deserving of sympathy, support, resources, or whatever. It's unpleasant. It pits people against each other. There's another undertone to it, which is it can also create a level of jealousy mm-hmm. almost. I mean, that's one thing that's happened because of the experience of the Holocaust, because of centuries, millennia of oppression and pogroms and so on. Um, that irritates a certain kind of woke identitarian. Um, it irks them, um, and so you've seen this very conscious attempt to kind of delegitimize the status of Jews to talk about them as kind of hyper white and privileged, and so on, even in the face of the kind of scenes that we've been seeing. And and bringing it back to the kind of domestic context, I suppose, and some of the backlash that we've already seen on the streets, not just quote-unquote pro-Palestine demonstrations which have just lapsed into open anti-Semitism and support for Hamas but also a kind of natural rise in people being assaulted, shouted at, spat at and so on. We live in a society which constantly wants to talk about and reckon with racism past and present to a point which has become almost slightly um, trivial and excessive, you know, Mm. whether or not um, some woman of um, a black British woman at at the palace with the royals gets asked an awkward question. You know, that's the sort of discussion that we're having. And yet, put the Hamas thing to one side for a moment. Even the antisemitism, which is experienced by British Jews, is never really properly reckoned with. They're 0.5% of the population. Uh, they're the victims of about a quarter of all of the religiously motivated hate crimes. Mm. The, things happen and never really get discussed in any serious way. I mean, that shocking scenes a couple of years ago, where there was that group of men who were driving around northwest London, Jewish areas of northwest London, saying, kill the Jews, fuck their mothers, rape their daughters... Was something that we talked about for a week and then it went away and i think it's another reminder that what is in terms of so much the discussion about israel the rage against israel the reason that it's it has permeated for so long is because it has become the language through which anti-semitism is expressed in its most vicious form and yet it's still made excuses for it, is not really talked about it's fascinating
0: and, and and the kind of thought police that we rail against constantly on this podcast the people who want to cancel everyone the literal police you know um, who arrest people for saying women can't have penises they are always oddly silent around this kind of time. You know, nothing, there was no action taken against um, that convoy of people saying, we're going to rape your mothers and daughters, but you know, see what happens if you say something far milder. Mm. Um, And again, it's not just the outright sort of anti-Semitism that you see. It's the, it's the kind of indifference to it from the political elites, from the cultural elites. There's been an interesting um, episode in sort of how does football deal with this, you know, after the horrific murder of George Floyd, everyone recognizes that was a tragedy, but in in America, England players been taking the knee for several years. Now the FA says it's gonna ban Israel flags from football matches and will not light up Wembley stadium is in the Israel colors because it might prove too divisive. So there is clearly, you know, a hierarchy of, of racism, a hierarchy of um, victimhood, you know, one person in America versus Thirteen hundred Jews in Israel. It's it's staggering when you sort of put those things two together.
1: Ralph. I mean, I think we have in the West this this weird combination of a minority complex and the level of arrogance. And just to put an example to this: what you just mentioned, we saw kind of all over of Western cities in the last couple of weeks, right? People with Palestinian flags mm-hmm. in Sydney, where they literally yelled "Jews to the gas." In Germany, where people yelled "Hamas, Hamas." juice to the gas so this happens and kind of nobody does something against it really like the police stands there and looks at it if these would be neo-nazis all of them as they should right probably be arrested or at least the, the demonstration would be dissolved but there's this weird combination like it's the the arrogance on the one hand that we pretend that, well, this is just what these people do, right? There's this famous saying, it's, it's a bigger tree or a racism in one of low expectations, mm. which is, you know, that the Germans like pretzels and beer and the Japanese open sushi places. And if you have a, a Muslim minority, they just go out in the streets and, and mm. chance juice into the gas. It's just, you know, it's just part of the, the colorful mosaic of multiculturalism. Mm. And then there is the kind of minority complex that when these things tend to go out of hand, you can't really do anything against it because it turns out that these people very often mean it. But right? I think one of the things is that very often that we saw this and the spike has played a significant role in this, if you push back against wokeness, mm-hmm. kind of, they tend to go back fairly quickly. They go to the things yeah. fairly quickly. But there are other groups who are significantly more motivated. Mm. And a lot of this, you mentioned, I think, quite nicely also what happened with, with a, a, um, BLM, who also, at least the US branch, um, has behaved atrociously mm. uh, in yeah. the last couple of days. But there is the same thing. This is you take a knee, like whether, but if we are completely honest, it never had anything to do with black lives. It was, look at me, right? It's yeah. arrogance. Look yeah. at me how virtuous I am. I'm British, but I take a knee against police brutality in, in the United States. We also had the same demonstrations in Vienna. Vienna has, I don't know, maybe 2,000 black people, and none of them is from the United States. So, so, and most people who demonstrated have never been to the United States, but it was, look at me, I'm standing up for the yeah. right thing. And we should uh, specify
0: that, you know, Black what her Black Lives Matter chapter literally posted, uh, you know, a picture um, essentially of a person in a hang glider recalling the scenes of those 260 people murdered at a music festival saying, I stand with Palestine, mm-hmm. saying that they support
2: this openly. I mean, that's been one of the things that's been so stomach turning about it is we're used to apologism in the face of mm. Anti-Semitism or Islamist terrorism in general, we go suddenly get into some bizarre kind of root causes discussion about why someone has just gone and indiscriminately murdered people. At that point, that's an, if you're if you find yourself reaching for the context at a moment in which the bodies are barely cold, then there is something fundamentally wrong with you. I think the but I think Ralph's exactly right is that this profound racism in this discussion stems from this idea. It was like, well, what do you expect? Mm. I mean, it, it's, it's essentially suggesting that the people who committed these awful crimes are basically like animals. that you can't, you know, they are the... Uh, you know, what else are they going to do? This is essentially like pogroms are the, are the voice of the unheard, is basically what they're trying to say at this point. And on the one hand, the kind of identitarian takes on this atrocity have, on the one hand, made you realise how trivial some of these people are, some of these kind of woke commentators and so on. You know, it gets started and there are some eyewitness accounts of rapes and they say, oh, that's just racist. And you think, yeah. really, you're going to, you're, you know, it's racist to accuse a terrorist of rape at this point. And that's right. kind of what we're getting into. This discussion, which we've already gestured to, which is broken out now about whether or not babies were just killed or also beheaded, which is broken out now, is an absolutely absurd kind of discussion that we've found ourselves in. So on the one hand, you think these people are so gripping to their narratives. They so want Hamas, if not to be the good guy, then at least to be the kind of the kind of villain that you can understand. Mm. Um, but it's gotten so much worse than that. there was as we've been talking about open celebration of this, talk about this as a blow against the colonists, talking about this as if it was one step towards a more just and righteous world. this is it's we've 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 moved into a completely different stage of this now, and I think it's not just a case of. Islamist extremists doing one thing and woke leftists making excuses for it, then they're now a lot closer than they were previously, even in the wake of the horrors that we've just witnessed. I
1: think I think it's a great point, and just as a, as a quick add-on to this, because let's talk about root causes, right? I think we can have this mm-hmm. conversation. and If you take a look, the, the world is never a just place. So I think every community, every country, every wannabe state must deal with the cards that they have been dealt. But we never hear these conversations, for example, in Southeast Asia. Right. These these countries, many of them were also colonies, right? But they decided after colonialism was over, after they decolonized, to say, okay, we need to get our act together and then do something, build something. That if you take, uh, if you ever have been, I have been myself, if you ever have been to Gaza, that's prime real estate on the Mediterranean. So hypothetically, in 2007, Hamas could have taken over and say, you know what, we put a pin in the whole Islamism, death to the Jews thing for 10 years uh, and built five-star hotels and turned this into Cote d'Azur in the Eastern Mediterranean everybody from Israel to Qatar to the EU, they would have given them more money than they could count. Because if they said, if we can pacify this, this is the biggest success Mm. we can have. But they didn't want that. And I think this is also something we in the West have to understand. There are groups of people who have different priorities. And the weird thing is, and this goes to what you said, because this is a form of racism. Many talk for them but they never listen to what they actually say. I mean, yeah. just in recent days, they come out and say, you love life and we love mm-hmm. death. I mean, and we have these, for example, when Israeli um, military called them up and said, you know, empty this building, we're going to bomb it. And they say, we won't do it. And I said, you have to, there are children there. And they say, well, if these children have to die for the, for the greater cause, then they have to die. These people think differently. These are people who are in stores and shops who have, literally, right, the martyr of the month on the wall, right? Mm -hmm. Where where Women are honored if two out of their three children became suicide bombers. So the idea that this is just like Switzerland, they just took a slightly different turn at one point, it's just not true. And we talk about them, but and this is just like the Black Lives Matter thing, we talk about them without ever really looking at what's going on in those societies. Mm -hmm. And Tom, finally, just
0: just to finish off, I mean, the thing that perplexes me is that the way that people can claim to be on the side of the Palestinians while also seemingly backing Hamas mm-hmm. because Hamas is not interested in the welfare of the Palestinians as Ralph has alluded mm-hmm. to. It's not interested in Palestinian self determination. How did we get into that muddle? And and why do you know why are people accused if you sort of speak up for Israel, if mm-hmm. you speak up for the people who've been murdered, you're accused of hating the
2: Palestinians Mm -hmm. the
0: opposite is the truth.
2: I think the reason we got into that muddle is because of the fact that it's a mix of ignorance and it's never really for them been about the Palestinians in the first place. If you're really that concerned about the Palestinians, why is there not even a moment for them to say, isn't it an absolute tragedy that the Palestinian cause is now effectively led by this genocidal terrorist group yeah. that it has completely obliterated any aspirations that there once were for self-determination, consuming it within this cult, genocidal, you know... And suicidal. This genocidal and suicidal attempt to basically just wipe Israel and Jews off the map. Why not even dwell for a moment on the points that we all know is true, which is that this organisation which is reigning over Gaza, has since its founding been committed to the murder of Jewish people That is sees itself locked in a kind of apocalyptic struggle, effectively, that this is something which anyone who pays even the least bit of attention to it surely shouldn't support. But I think it's quite clear that For certainly for you kind of average Western woke leftist, um, they have no idea about any of this stuff or they choose to ignore it when they do know about it, because for them, it's just part of a really crude, really simplistic sort of battle between evil Western states, which are colonialists, even when they're not colonialists, which are drenched in racism, even when they're certainly not the kind of societies that they think they are um and the palestinians are just a pawn in that game for them i think that's what's become abundantly clear in the midst of all of this so if we are going to have a conversation about the welfare of the palestinians why don't we talk about the fact that they have in such tragic circumstances come to be led by these complete maniacs who are if anything in everything that they do put those people in more harm.
0: hi it's fraser here i just wanted to let you know about a very special event we've got coming up Spiked will be returning to the Battle of Ideas, Britain's premier ideas festival where free speech truly reigns. While we're there, Spiked will be recording a very special live edition of this podcast. That'll be on Saturday, the 28th of October at 12.15pm. For the pods, joining me will be Tom Slater, as per usual, plus some special guests, including Konstantin Kissin, Rakiba San and Inaya Falarin Iman. Now, if you haven't got your ticket already to the Battle of Ideas, then now is the time to get one. It won't just be our podcast. We'll also be recording a special edition of Last Orders with Tom Slater, Chris Snowden and special guests to come. Plus, across the weekend, there will be loads of spiked writers speaking on all kinds of panels, as well as hundreds of other fascinating thinkers. To get your ticket for the Battle of Ideas, just go to battleofideas.org dot uk, and while you're there, you can use the promo code spiked to get yourself twenty percent off a ticket. That's battleofideas.org.uk org uk, and the promo code spiked to get yourself a twenty percent off discount. See you at the event. So the Labour Party conference wrapped up this week. Keir Starmer set out his uh, vision, such as is it such as it is. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Um, an hour later, I mean, I watched the whole speech. I'm, Tom, I'm still none the wiser as to what he wants to mm. the country, what he believes in, what his principles are. Yeah,
2: there's a lot of cliches. Um, there was a lot of very dull delivery. I, I can't be the only one. I struggle to actually follow what he's saying. Not because mm. it's particularly complicated, but just because it's the delivery. It's so numbing. You know, it's like kind of drowning in blamond when you hear him and Rachel Reeves speak, incidentally. Um, you, you've got the kind of usual ragbag of kind of New Labour tribute act. You know, we, we need to embrace the public sector but we need to reach out to the private sector we need a new partnership um, there was some relatively interesting stuff on house building I'm not sure if I trust me to deliver it but nevertheless it's nice that someone is at least talking about that but beyond that it's all the kind of usual um, essentially just focus group platitudes I mean the, the things that were interesting were usually interesting for the wrong reasons like they seem to have a desire perhaps because they're so desperate to demonstrate their credibility and their, their um, economic credentials in the wake of the Jeremy Corbyn period to seemingly invest more and more power in unelected bodies so they now want to you know beef up the OBR so that they can effectively veto their policies certainly to give them you know more ability to um, undermine anything that they might want to do if the sums don't add up there's constant talk about empowering this body or that body to ensure that this happens this constant talk about these ironclad fiscal rules of theirs to restrain their ability to move I don't really know who this is supposed to inspire you know apart from maybe the kind of Uh, the right of the Labour Party commentary or something like that but they seem to spend a lot of time dwelling on these things Um, it's just such a reminder that um, there is this enthusiasm this excitement amongst the commentators amongst the pundit set particularly the because anti toryism has become such a kind of religion for these people but that excitement is not earned by what the Labour Party is actually putting out there and it's certainly not reflected in the polls The, the clear picture that you've got is that Labour do have this commanding lead, which is built almost entirely on how much the Tory party have fucked it last time around. You know, there is a the lead that they have, certainly amongst working class voters, is so much smaller mm. than it is in the rest of the country, um, that what is supposed to be the Labour party's base are not convinced by Keir Starmer. The biggest chunk of them, the most significant chunk of them, are, not, are undecided who they're going to vote for, and the rest of them are kind of splaying off in a couple of different directions. The lead is very soft, yeah. um, and yes, he's gifted with quite terrible opponents at this point, but um, the it's, it's such a fascinating gap between the kind of excitement that um, Labour getting back into power seems to provoke amongst commentators on the basis of sheer loyalty, um, but the sheer lack of substance that he's actually articulating when he gets up on a podium.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and Ralph, I mean, it, one thing that always you know disappoints me about the current moment is that in, in Britain we've lived through this kind of populist moment of Brexit, and it feels like on both sides in terms of Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer although it's a slightly worse is that we, you know, we have um, basically technocracy coming back. We have people who are offering, you know, technocratic solutions or non-solutions to um, to our problems. Not really saying what they think. Not really having any principles. Just saying we'll tinker, we'll empower the state more, we'll empower the officials more, the civil servants, um, and let them get on with it. That it just, it just feels like it doesn't match up to the scale of the problems and challenges that we have.
1: No, I think that is true. And I think that, that you are way too polite. I think we, we have and this is also a problem in continental Europe. We have moved from solving problems to managing problems. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and this is and a lot of it what happens then is and the managing basically consists of a government trying to push it on to the next government. Yeah. Like we know that many of the things, many of the plans, I'm sure we're gonna talk about this later. For mm-hmm. example, in the environmental area, in in the energy area, basically what comes from governments, not just in Britain. Is, is fantasy stuff, right? Mm. A lot of this is sheer nonsense. And I think they know that, right? Yeah. They will update, they say, you know, 2050, who cares about 2050? Mm-hmm. I know, I'll be long out of office by 2050. I might be, even be dead by 2050. So this is, uh, this is, and the problem is, of course, the bills are due now, mm-hmm. and and the, the promise is always it's happened in the future. It reminds me, because we talked about Hamas a, a couple of minutes ago, but this is, and I mean, I'm being deliberately provocative here, but this is a little bit, the, the communists always said the same thing in the Soviet Union. The utopia is just around the corner. Give us one more, more year, right? And you see in, yeah. in the Islamic world was the same thing, right? Like Islam will rule, the the, the caliphate will come back. Just give us one more, more year. And we are not the same, right? Climate change will end and net zero will be here. And then uh, your electricity bills will drop and you will hint your house with uh, wind and solar. Just give us one more, more year. It's, 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 it's We are in an almost neo-religious phase with, all kinds of weird belief systems
0: and and ironically the sort of the wackier it is the more sensible we're told these people are you know the most kiss armor is supposed to be this sort of sensible pragmatic Mm -hmm. technocratic leader and he believes some fairly wacky things not just on the energy thing but you know for instance that one in a thousand women might have a penis
2: yeah (laughs) There's 99.9 still a hell of a lot of penises yeah um (laughs) but this is this is the thing and this is a point that many people have have, have made is the fact that so much of what the commentariat talk about in terms of british politics is so detached from reality. Mm-hmm. so they talk constantly about the center by which they mean people who agree with me. Yeah. that's all it means. if you look at where the british public are on various different issues they're often far to the left or far to the right of where the your average um, tory mp or labour mp. usually left is. on the further to the left on the economy further right on sort of cultural e- matters. exactly. and and yet that's not reflected in british politics as we know. Um, also some of this discussion as you say about being sensible you know all parties really I mean Rishi Sunak has pushed back on the net zero agenda ever so slightly but all of them are wedded to a policy of self-impoverishment hmm. um, on the back of technologies which as we're going to get on to um, are pie in the sky in terms of delivering the energy that we need all of them as a matter of almost like religious fealty hmm. have to mouth the platitudes about net zero and to Com- Trying out compete one another about how ambitious they're going to be in pursuing this no hoper energy policy. Um, and as you say, even on some of the gender stuff, the, where Keir Starmer is um, on a really sticky wicket, is the fact that the Conservatives have kind of really called his bluff on this issue. Now, yeah. you know, they've really recognised that this is something which is cut through, which people recognise is completely deranged. They look at Keir Starmer talking about 99.9% of women not having penises and think, what the hell is he going on about? And Again, come back to that question of sensibleness and credibility. I think if you want to be a sensible, credible politician who wants to be elected, that maybe you should concede that women don't have penises. Yeah. Like he's been willing to upset the left of his party on so many issues. You know, he campaigned for the leadership as a Corbynite and then governed like a Blairite as in within his own party. Um, he's There's been U-turn after U-turn, um, fence-sitting, <laughs> followed by fence-sitting on all these kinds of different things. But when it came to the gender issue, which Mm -hmm. is clearly a problem for him, he still can't make that step to say what we all assume he actually believes, but is terrified of actually saying, which is that biological sex is real. So I think that issue, as with many others, is just a reminder that the supposed sensibles of politics are either nuts or in hock to people who are nuts. And that's definitely the prediction with Keir Starmer, I think.
0: And the other other area that the Tories haven't done enough to challenge him on, I think, is, is race. Uh, Labour still plans to institute a kind of race equality act to essentially describe all of the UK's problems as down to systemic racism. Um, He plans to give um, money, government money to various companies on the basis of the
2: race of their uh, owner. I mean, this again, this is plainly... Worked out well so many times before when this sort of thing (laughs) has been... But that's the other thing. It reminds me a bit of Joe Biden as well, because of the fact that when he was... um, obviously during the 2020 campaign, there was this push from particularly kind of anti-woke liberals to say, I mean, there was literally a piece by Yash Munk that said, um, if you hate wokeness, vote for Joe Biden, Um, which I'm sure is probably a headline he regrets at this point. Mm. Because the fact that, and quite understandably, people thought, look at Joe Biden, He's the he's the most down-the-line kind of guy. The idea that he's reading, you know, Robin DiAngelo is ridiculous. He's probably not reading anything yeah. these days. I'm not sure if anything can hold his attention. You know, he's this old guy. He's not going to be this kind of over-the-top wokeser. But it has a
0: quite right-wing track record. Exactly. Busing.
2: <laughs> oh, exactly. Segregation. On all these yeah. different... So not Pro-mass without... Mass incarceration. <laughs> to be generous to the anti woke liberals, not without cause did they make this prognostication. But day one, yeah. he's signing executive orders about um, transgender... Um, women being able to compete in women's sports he's signing executive orders around the racial question and equity he was at one point trying to apportion covid relief on the basis of race to it he got held up by the courts i think with kia we will see a very similar thing is that he is the slightly different way an empty vessel but mm. the empty vessel has to be filled with something and it will be filled with this nonsense definitely before we get back to the last section of the show i just want to let you all know about our very exciting upcoming online event that we're having on tuesday the 17th of October. Brendan O'Neill is going to be doing an extra special live recording of his podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show, and he's going to be joined by the one and only Graham Linehan, comedy writer, gender critical warrior, and very firmly cancelled at this point. They're going to be discussing Graham's new book, a kind of memoir of his cancellation, as well as all the issues around cancel culture and gender ideology as well. Most importantly, they'll be taking audience questions, so you really don't want to miss this. This event is online, it's on Zoom, and it's exclusively for Spike supporters, members of our online donor community. So, if you already are a Spike supporter, thank you very much for your support. Go to the online hub now and claim your free ticket. If you're not already a Spike supporter, now is surely the best time to sign up. For as little as £5 each month, you can claim your free ticket to this event, many more events like it, as well as all kinds of other exclusive perks, including ad free reading on Spiked, access to our comment section, and much more. So to find out more about that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters.
0: So one of the highlights slash lowlights of the Labour conference was uh, Ed Miliband, the failed Labour leader who, you know, badly lost the 2015 election, but he's reinvented himself as a kind of climate martyr. And one thing he's been saying, um, he's been banging the drum for, is he obviously wants to go faster on net zero than Rishi Sunak. He wants this kind of all clean electricity by 2030, but also he says, and and you hear this a lot in green circles, that actually net zero is the answer to our energy security problems. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you make of that argument? I mean, surely renewables are not going to make our energy more secure.
1: Well, if you allow, I, I think this is a great moment to kind of tie all the conversations we had together in in uh, in in, in, a, in, an, in an attempt, at least. But a little bit this, you know, starting with the fictional and then moving into the very real. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, all these debates uh, remind me of H.T. Wells' The Time Machine, right? Where you kind of have the story where in the in the far future, humanity is divided into this basically two races, right? The, the morlocks live underground and they do all the hard work. And then you have kind of the, the weak, feeble Eloy on, on on top. And this strikes me a little bit is a, is a good metaphor of what's happening in politics, Right. We expect that somebody does all the work, and mm. this brings me into the energy question. While we—and I say just we in a generalized way—have um, all these absurd debates again, <laughs> women with penises, and and, and 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 you know, diversity bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And I think the NHS had a, what a, uh, they had a position for a lift experience officer yeah. that would have paid you what one hundred and ten thousand pounds a year. <laughs> so this this is like you can do this even mm. as long as the the work right the Eloy can can engage in these kind of things but what we have been trying to do in the west and this is kind of where, where i think we can put this together is we outsource it i mean look at yeah. joe biden right joe yeah. biden again he tries to as a friend of mine says he's kind of trying to ride two horses with one ass, mm. or as your listeners would say with one arse i think would be the correct <laughs> term so they say and this is not really important also mm-hmm. to connect to the israel thing they basically turn a blind eye yeah. to Iran's exports of oil. Mm-hmm. They turn a blind eye to Venezuela. Right? They allow these, they, they, again, Qatar, right? again, a Hamas supporter, is a massive LNG exporter. So they allow this, but they don't extract resources at home because they have to appease the environmental lobby. And let's just be very clear. Um, there, we heard this after the attack on, on Ukraine, right? That Europe is more united than ever. NATO is more united than ever. And, 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 and you know, when Hamas shot 5,000 rockets in Israel, Let's be clear, without the shale revolution in the United States, without LNG from the United States, which produced as much energy as two Saudi Arabias over the last kind of every year over the last 10 years, there would have been no way for Europe to resist uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine Mm. because there would have been not little gas, there would have been no gas, the lights would have gone out there would have been no way to have sanctions on Iran because the world would have needed that energy. So they would have had twice as much, three times as much money to give to Hamas. So these things are interconnected. And this bothers me a little bit in today's debate. Right? We have become such a present-tense culture and we will see the same with Israel. That's what I'm worried about. Mm. Right? Now everybody's up in arms on on each side. Mm-hmm. But how long? Two weeks? Three weeks? Right, And, and we have become so... Desensitized to these things. So again, okay, we hear about killed babies, and then two weeks people will say, yeah, again with the babies, mm-hmm. we have heard this. This is yeah. really, really an issue we know, tell with my key point, and this is why we don't understand, for example, people like Hamas, is there are people in this world who really think in these historical dimensions. It's a very Western thing to be so bound to a present-tense culture, That we believe that pretty much everything is just a quick flag a quick you know uh black space in an instagram account and then you move on we are not serious about anything Mm -hmm. whereas others are i mean i'm not happy about what they're serious about but they are and we are not and that this way we have these weird debates like the gender debates i would really wish and i hope that what happened last weekend allows us to do this to kind of say the woke movement has lost all moral credibility. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah. want to use this. I know this is cynical, but I want to use this to say, the way you behave, I don't take you serious on anything else e- either. So mm-hmm. so, so you there was a moment where you could have shown moral clarity, you didn't. So don't, you know, somebody must stand up in the room and say, the whole, you know, who has a penis? This must end. Mm-hmm. We must become a serious society and a serious country again. And I think this is, so these things are tied together. We need more engineers and less, you know, gender study majors. Mm-hmm. We need people to understand why the light actually turns on if you yeah. flick the switch. And people don't know this, right? They just think food is in the supermarket, money in the ATM and, and the electricity comes out of a socket in the wall. But uh, there is something behind that and we need to appreciate this again.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. I mean, the, I, my problem is and why I'm quite pessimistic about all this is there have been so many occasions in recent years where the elites could have shaken themselves out of the bizarre orthodoxies that they've wedded themselves to, Mm. and that could be on all kinds of different fronts. That could be on the economic front, that could be on the energy front, certainly on the gender and identity politics front. You are confronted either with a problem which is so big and real and concrete, like a pandemic or like a war in Europe or like uh, the indiscriminate slaughter of Jews in Israel. And You would think that this would be a point in which people would start to reassess some of the roads that they've been going down in all kinds of different ways it never really happens. That's what's fascinating. It, because the people who are least affected by the consequences of their policies and rhetoric and words um, are the ones who are setting those policies. There is genuinely, and it's not just sort of populist talking point, the distance, I think, between the people who govern us and the governed is so immense now. And that's not even in terms of the lives that people lead, but also just in terms of the the kind of moral universe they occupy. And I, you know, one always hopes that something will Will write that ship that they will come to grapple with what has gone wrong and start to be serious about the problems that we're facing, not least because the stakes are so incredibly high literally, a question of life or death in some of the issues that we're talking about. Uh, but it never actually arrived, or at least not in the medium term, if it was well.
1: I think that's, that's a great point. I mean, I, I'm always tempted to, to defend the elites a little mm. bit, which is, I mean, we have created or, or, or it has evolved and we've become such an individualistic culture, such an individualistic society in many ways, right? Kind of Where your authentic self, the way you identified yourself is the only true criteria. Yet somehow we would expect to have an elite that, that you know, kind of wants to act as a role model, right? That kind of in, in a sense, I like this, I don't believe the British still like it, but like the Victorians in the 19th century, mm-hmm. right? That, that you might not be born as, as a member of the aristocracy, but you should still strive to become a gentleman, these kind of things. So I think value-wise, I think we can still learn a lot from the 19th century. You know it's an unpopular thing to say, but honestly, <laughs> there was a time when I think about half the prostitutes in London were under 15 years old in the 19th century until people got out and said, this is wrong, Right? this should not happen. And what they did is they abolished it, right? So they made this this disappear. Now in the 21st century, we have grooming camps in Rotherhampton, in Yorkshire and all these places where pretty much the same thing happened. The Victorians turned again in the 19th century, but we don't turn against it because we say, as we said previously, well, this is just in, in that culture, it's just different. And can you really criticize it? Can you really say anything about it? We have lost, we have no moral compass anymore. And this is... Why right, they? But this ties all together because mm-hmm. this is what we saw over the last couple of days, and and this is we only have fake discussions, and mm-hmm. the, in the energy sector it's the same thing. It's good there is no world right where anything works without energy, and if somebody
2: tells you it does, they're lying to you, mm-hmm. right? That yeah. they use it as a religion, but it has nothing to do with reality. And rather than also like waiting around for the elites to get their act together, because they're clearly not going to do that, even yes. if we would prefer that they would. This is another thing that's depressing about the at least at the moment the way in which the kind of populist moment seems to have if not waned is kind of uh, not necessarily in the ascendancy in britain at least mm. different case in many other countries of course is so depressing because i think the antidote to so much elite hysteria and nonsense is um the public <laughs> yeah is and the, the, because there was that period in which people were galvanized by things like the brexit vote people felt like their vote mattered they felt like they were suddenly actually a um A consideration in the discussion about all these sorts of things. They'd put themselves on the map and I think on a lot of these issues that we're talking about, the reason Rishi Sunak in his very mild and meek way is trying to push back on net zero agenda ideology or whatever is because ordinary people are a factor in this discussion now in a way that they weren't previously so I think that's all the more reason if you think the elites have completely lost the plot it's, it's surely more fuel and impetus to push forward with that kind of populist revolt which was towards kind of bringing politics back down to people's views, priorities, values. I think if we can reignite that, we'd um, get certainly a lot closer to being sane than we are at the moment.
0: Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.